0: Well, Jeremy's really put the pressure on me now. I've got to think of a creative way to end. <laughs> so if I get distracted in the middle, I'm just you'll know why. Let me uh, tell you, uh, begin with a story, really. Um, revision, if you like. Victoria, we began the week, I think, with a 93-year-old. Let me end, uh, um, at least I'll begin this session, the final session, with a 19-year-old. Victoria is 19 years old. She's an apprentice hairdresser who's part of um, a mid-sized Anglican church. She's been in the job. When I met her, she'd been in the job for just about a month. It's a very busy salon, so there's always something to do. And it's always got to be done quickly. She's really enjoying it, but she's, she's felt the pressure. This is her first job and, you know, all of that. And three weeks into her job, her vicar commissions her into the job. Uh, you know, we began the week by asking, how many of that happened to you? Wasn't that beautiful last night? I think if you were here last night... And if you're watching online and you weren't here for Thursday evenings, addressed by Anzaki, we had the opportunity, all of us, to be prayed for, for the places where we find ourselves. A really beautiful moment. Anyway, her vicar commissions her uh, into her job. And uh, she was been much more at peace since then. And I asked her in a a room full, not, not quite as many as this, but maybe 300 people in it, I asked her this question. So what difference does being a Christian make to the way you wash someone's hair. Now, I, I reflect back on that question and think, I hope that was the Holy Spirit, because it was actually, she didn't know the question was coming. Quite a difficult question in a way. But quick as a, quick as a flash, she said, I pray for them as I massage in the conditioner. It's interesting that, isn't it? I'm sure she massages well. That's part of it. But her praying is an invisible gift to her clients. Soothing conditioner for the soul, not just for the hair. And behind that that prayer, that simple prayer for that person, lies a whole set of beliefs. Victoria believes that her daily context in a hairdressing salon as an apprentice is important to God. She believes that the actual work she does is important to God and it can be done in a distinctive way. She believes that God is alive and that he can move in a hairdressing salon. She believes that God wants to bless her clients and that she can be part of that. She believes in the power of prayer and in God's freedom to respond in his own way, in his own time. She doesn't need to see the results of those prayers. So one day, of course, she will. Indeed, this side of heaven, for the most part, she probably won't. But it's still worth praying. God will be listening to her. She's confident in the God who sends her as His vice regent, as His priest. Well, this week we've been uh, thinking about all of that stuff. I'm going to. My clicker's not working. I can cut this out of the the stick version. You don't get that on the stick version. So, you know, it's well worth the 15 quid. Not to hear me say, my clicker's not working. But my clicker's not working. Oh, here it is. Thank you very much. What on earth are we here for? Not going to watch that. And there's uh, James again. So, yes, I said life's a peach, not an orange, uh, which means that life's a peach, not an orange. Life is not an orange divided into lots of segments which are separated from one another. No, it's all one thing. Life's a peach. And if you want to get cheesy, at the centre of a peach is a rock. But we on the outside are meant to be sensitive and tender. It goes on, but the main point is there. Um, but the point is, the sacred-secular divide, we, we need to get rid of it. We need to get rid of the notion that there are some things that are really important to God and others that aren't. And we've seen that during the week. We've seen that. And it's based in the cross. It's based in Jesus' work, And his commission to us from the beginning and his continuing commission to us now, that we would be bringers of shalom in the places where we find ourselves. And um, just to say for those of you who are retired or about to be retired or one day will be retired, we do have a particular resource at LICC called Repurpose, Discover Fresh Purpose in Retirement, which you can access from the website. It's six sessions and downloadable for free, and I hope you find that helpful if you're either entering that or in it already. Um, We then looked at uh, why does your particular work matter to God, thinking about that and recognising, I hope, that there's all kinds of ways to be fruitful for God in whatever we do, uh, including housework. And then we began to look at fruitfulness. We looked yesterday at the variety of ways that you already are fruitful for Christ where you are. And one of the things we noticed, one of the things we were trying to look at then was How do I read my own life through biblical lenses? You remember the the policeman who couldn't quite see that he was a a peacemaker at Number 10 Downing Street. And I hope that you, as you reflected yesterday and as you reflect on, you will see the ways biblically that you have been uh, fruitful in Christ. The question I suppose today, and the thing that I've been drawn to share with you really, is the question of how do we keep this whole life perspective going? Because as we said at the beginning, it's not not been the way that the church, historically, whatever the stream is, has been discipling us, really. It's It's not the way that the Bible has usually been taught, at least not since Wesley, commonly. So how do we read our Bibles slightly differently, so that we see these things? Now, of course, to begin with, it's obvious in a way that the Bible is a whole life document. Its concern is for all of life right from the beginning. Um, and it's there obviously as we saw earlier on in the scope of things that the Lord by his Holy Spirit directs us to be concerned about and we know very simply that, that um, all scripture is god breathed and is useful for a variety of things it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness so that we, the servants of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work notice the different tones of voice in that Teaching is one thing. And then there's rebuking. Stop it. And then there's correcting. That's pretty good, but have, have you tried it this way? And maybe God wants you just, just to adjust a little bit. It's very gentle. And then there's training. Let's keep on at this together, and so on. Different, God speaks to us in different tones of voice through his word, does he not? Every good work, though. How then shall we ensure that the Bible actually does that? Well, I'm going to begin by giving you a verse to discuss um, from Psalm 144, just one verse and I'm just going to ask you in in groups of two or three more if you insist, perhaps turn around to somebody that you've not met. Uh, Here it is, I'm going to read the whole verse. (laughs) Psalm 144 of David, praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So have a little conversation about what do you notice, what strikes you, is anything odd about that, anything that's Hits you, so say hello. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm going to try to do this feedback thing again. So you have to be short, and I'll be I'll be speaking it out. So any comments? Anybody notice anything that you fingers? Fingers detail? Yes. Detail, very good, yeah. Confidence in preparation for battle, God has, God has trained him. Yes, there's a hand there. War in church members' meetings. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, let me get that right. Prepare for war in church members' meetings.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, yeah. Personal pronoun. That's right, my. three times, isn't it? It's a personal God to David. It's my, my, my rock. Yeah, my hands. Yeah, yeah. Someone else? Yes. It's a training, so it's an ongoing process. Very good, thank you. So he's a Christian in the work, well, yeah, in a culture that's often anti-God. So there's a battle there as well. Is that is that your intent? Thank you. Someone else. I can I can only see as far as the back. (laughs) Do we have another one? Oh, there's a there's a hand. Oh, there. Sorry. Rock. All in the rock. Has lots of resonances. The rock, doesn't it? Yeah. Very good. Training allows us to make mistakes. Part of training is failures as well as success. This is a training week for me. (laughs) So that's good news. Thank you. We're not alone. This is wonderful. Well, that solves my sermon for Sunday. Thank you very much. It's rich, isn't it? When uh, we listen to one another, we hear different things from one another in a passage. Well, um, let me tell you, this is part of my journey, really, in reading the Bible with whole-life eyes. Because I remember that one day I read this verse, and suddenly, suddenly, something really struck me about this: is that David is not some singer-songwriter in skinny black jeans with an acoustic guitar slung over his shoulder. He is a soldier. Oh God, he's a soldier. He's a captain. He's a rebel chief in armor. He's a king with a shield swung sh- over his shoulder. I, was, I suddenly realized that God was actually saying that, sorry, David was actually saying that God trained him to be effective in his day job, a dispenser of death in the service of God and his people. A dispenser of death to protect his people. Now this is obvious, but actually somehow I would missed it. And I, I realized how easy it is to read the Psalms and, and preach them as well, as if they were written by a contemporary singer-songwriter who's struggling with inner demons and emotional anxiety and relational breakdown, rather than to, to read them as somebody who is a soldier facing Philistine armies, the threat of execution and civil war. Now, how could I have missed it? And of course, the rich range of potential applications that would have ensued from this directly to our armed forces and to people working in the defence industry right now. One of my friends, um, he makes missiles in Stevenage. And, uh, you know, how glad I am that NATO missiles are at the moment more accurate than Russian ones. And a more accurate Russian missile, as Jeremy pointed out to me earlier, a more accurate missile means that fewer civilians get killed. How do you make a missile to the glory of God? You make it as accurate as possible. Now, of course, we have issues about war. Of course we do. Now, uh, the reality is that David wrote 73 Psalms and 57 of them, 57 of them, 81% of them include the word enemies. Let that sink in for a second. So who are these enemies? Well, they are Philistine forces, they're Amalekites, and they are Saul, although Saul is never called an enemy. And there is his own son Absalom and his own people. And why has he got all these people trying to kill him? Because of his day job. He is a soldier, he's a commander, he's a king. In some, David had a rather toxic working environment. And the majority of his psalms are a response to that. Now, we've tended to call them psalms of lament. There are other psalms of lament, haven't we? And they are. But they're primarily work psalms. They are responding to his every day. Now, that does not mean that we can't apply... These texts, as people turn to a whole range of other situations, or to a whole range, or that the whole range of emotions that David expresses to God aren't helpful to us in expressing ourselves to God. But we miss something really important if we miss the reality that these are rooted in David's day-to-day life, and that there is actually a big difference between the Davidic Psalms, seventy-three of them, and the other Psalms primarily written by what you might call professional worship leaders, if you like. The sons of Asaph, uh, the sons of Korah, and so on. I mean, Solomon writes one, and Moses writes one, and Ethan writes one, and so on. But predominantly, but that's a different thing. How interesting that is. And then when you think about the kind of songs that we might sing and do sing, is there that kind of balance? The balance of the songs that come out of this community and the things that we're facing now and the songs that come, if you like, which do declare the great truths of the Lord. Rightly so. And do rehearse the great history of his work in his world and his universe over time. The sending of his son, his death, resurrection, ascension and the coming consummation. All of that's fantastic. Of course, David sometimes does that too. But the point is, how could I have missed this? I mean, I'm paid to see this sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, I realize that's because of the sacred-secular divide. It's because of lots of reasons. It's because, actually, um, most of the commentaries don't, don't say anything about it. And uh, as Jeremy pointed out, if you're a preacher and the commentary doesn't say anything about it and you do happen to notice it, you think, well, no one's saying anything about it, so it can't possibly be legitimate. It's a very humble but helpful comment, isn't it? If John Stott doesn't say it, well, it can't be right. I normally work with that as a principle. <laughs> I did some research a while back, and I, and I, I will come to the, you know, how we do this in a moment, but I want to help you see how deep this is. I did some research a while back, and this... Um, built on somebody else's work that were done 10 years before me. And I discovered that 50% of evangelicals at that time, evangelical Christians, uh, had never heard a sermon on work. Not one. Now, I don't think that would be the case now. But at, in any age, this really puzzled me. And it was certainly the case that very few people could give you a theology of work. Now, of course, why did, why did this puzzle me? It puzzled me because the Bible is full of this stuff. I'm now going to do two minutes. Some of this is repetition, but not much of it. In the beginning, we may have noticed from Jeremy that God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he clarifies that work is primary, not secondary. In Genesis 3, the Bible describes the consequences of human rebellion on work. In Genesis 4, we have Cain and Abel, both working and both bringing offerings, but in very different ways. Then we have the theme of work in the first big construction project, big boats. Then we have the theme of work, work carried out in defiance of God in the second big construction project, big tower. Uh, Then we have, it's in Joseph and it's in Moses and Jethro. Jethro is the first management consultant. He advises Moses to restructure the judiciary. You're burning out, we need a new system, let's do that, da-da-da-da, and so on. And you have it in the, in the exploration of leadership in Deborah, the only major judge who, interestingly, is not criticised at all. And the other judges. It's in Joshua and Kings. It's in Ruth. Uh, you'll find much of it in, on work in Proverbs, which ends with that great portrait of the wife of noble character, where the focus is very much on how the wise woman works. And this is a woman who... you know, This is the zenith of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And this is a woman who displays such a formidable range of domestic, managerial, and commercial skills that you could only match it by genetically splicing together Nigella Lawson, Karen Brady, and Angela Merkel. (laughs) And if you did, this is what you would get. (laughs) So be careful what you pray for, I think. I'm going to take that picture down quickly. It's a little bit (laughs) off-putting. So reading the Bible with whole life eyes. And work is in Ecclesiastes, it's in the Prophets and Esther and uh, her taking a stand in a very politically risky context. It's in Daniel and Nehemiah. Nehemiah under incredible pressure. It's in the Gospels and Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and so on. So how can it be that people haven't heard a sermon on work? In other words... How could that be? Because it's all over the Bible. Nobody's asking anybody to preach or teach what isn't there. Simply teach what's there. Now, nobody's doing this deliberately. It's because it's the culture that we've inherited, the sacred secular culture for decades and decades and decades. We don't see it. It's called selective perception. And many of you have been familiar with that idea selective perception. Perhaps some of you know a lot about. Well, I just met somebody who knows a lot about flowers. And you know, you, you know, I'm walking through a garden saying, so "There's a lot of pink ones around, aren't there? <laughs> Are they different?" <laughs> and he's he's identified 25 of them probably. Remember one person telling me uh, he he was walking through a wood, and the person he was with, who was he was who um, knew about these things, birds, asked him how many how many different birds can you hear? He said three. And he said, I can hear 17. You see, often we see, in a sense, what we're listening for. We see what we're looking for. We hear what we're listening for. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, because actually, in any context, there's too much information. And the Bible is so rich. know, almost any text, you can preach it four times at least. Genesis 1, probably 20, you know, it's, it's so rich. And so what happens is you get selective perception, selective enthusiasm, and selective application. And what I mean by selective application is that often for many of us, we will land a text, we will apply it in a particular way, Usually. So one time I was a very fine pastor um, and, and a good preacher, but every sermon ended with a call to do evangelism. Every time. didn't matter where we were, pretty much. That was his heart. He wanted us to go out and do that. And for others, it's teaching. And for others, it's, 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 it's more pastoral. It's, you know, where are you with God? Or, or it's more therapeutic. I mean, it's not, for some, it's, 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 pro, it's prophetic. It's social activist. Come on, guys, we've got to change the world. Uh, people have their predilections. But what I want to say is that the Bible is full of material about whole life topics set in everyday context and applicable to everyday contexts. So let me give you an example of this. Um, suppose you're coming up to a text like Galatians and you get to the Acts of the Flesh. Now, it's just a list. It's not a very attractive list. And at one level, that's not directly about any context. It's not necessarily about the golf club. It's not necessarily about the bowls club. It's not necessarily about a workplace. It's not necessarily about anywhere. But actually, it's hugely applicable. And for some of you here, you might be able to tick a number of those boxes about where you are. If you have to prepare for battle in a church meeting, maybe one or two of those get ticked. And then there are some people who are in places where actually quite a lot of those might be ticked. There might be quite a lot of selfish ambition or jealousy or envy or even drunkenness or discord or hatred in a context. So suddenly this becomes quite applicable instantly to many people's contexts. And I went to um, ask a friend of mine who works in Stevenage. I was going to speak to the young people there and I asked him to ask them to fill out this sheet of paper their context. And that's what one young man filled out. You can see the text, I think. Sexual immorality, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, drunkenness and orgies. That was his context. Teenager. That's, that's what that Christian young man was living in. And this is what one of the young women, 15-year-old woman said, girl. She ticked every single box except orgies and the like. Now, you preach differently to people and you respond differently to people when you know that. It's hugely applicable, isn't it? Hugely applicable. It makes a difference if you know that as a church and how you support people. However many or however few we tick. So part of reading the Bible with whole life eyes is actually to ask ourselves, how does this apply? Yes to my relationship, God. Yes to my relationship with others to my daily activities, to my leisure time and my rest, to my engagement with God's people. And one of the ways to actually practically do this is to recognize that, and we'll take biblical narrative for a moment, is that biblical narrative, that's the story sections, if you like, in both the Old and the New Testament, there's not nearly as much detail, is there, in in those texts as there would be uh, in a contemporary novel or a newspaper. We have no idea what Jesus looks like. God tells Abraham to take his son and to sacrifice him. And there's a three-day journey. What do we know about what Abraham is thinking? Absolutely nothing. Now, one level, we're meant to think, what is he thinking? We're meant to think about that, but we don't know. We don't know what Jesus looks like. We do know what Mr. Darcy looks like, according to Jane Austen. Not hugely like Colin Firth. We know what his house looked like. There's a lot of detail in contemporary stuff. The difference in the Bible is when there is a detail, it really does matter. So, for example, you know, we don't know whether Ruth is good-looking or not. Obviously, in all the picture books, she's gorgeous. But actually, we have no idea because actually it's not the key point. It doesn't make a difference to the plot. The key is her character. But we do know that Sarah is very beautiful. And why do we know that? because it's really important to the, to the plot, because actually she's so beautiful, she's a trophy woman, if you like, that other kings want to have her. So, so Abraham is worried that they'll come and kill him and take her. It matters. The detail matters. So I'm going to take you back. For some of you, this is what I taught in primary schools, but it's quite important. Uh, and I'll explain why in a moment. there are are five questions that journalists journalists ask when they're interviewing somebody. And I've found that asking these questions helps me a lot to make sure that I actually see the whole life context that's going on. Not Not just the overall background. Who is this? David is a soldier. Ah. It's a very simple question, isn't it? That's what he is. So we ask when we look at who, who's, in, who's, in this, who's in this situation and what's going on. What's actually going on here? When's it happening? In what era? What time of the year? Where is it happening? Why is it happening? And let me give you an example and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to work on an example a little bit together. So my example is from Acts 27. Perhaps you know this, this passage. This is Paul's journey to Rome via Malta via a massive storm, okay? Familiar with the story, he's, he's, he's appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he will go, and he gets on this boat, and off he goes. And there's so much going on in this story, this, in this storm. As you may recall, there is an angel, there is a shipwreck, and there are so many rich parallels uh, with other biblical passages. There's Paul and Jonah, both prophets, sent to communicate the gospel to the capital city of the, of the dominant empire of the time. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Let's preach on that. Fantastic. It's rare. It's meant to be there. And there's parallels between, if you like, Paul and Jesus in a boat on a storm. Is, is, is God going to still the storm the same way? That, and we're meant, we're meant to draw those parallels. And it's easy, if you like, to very spiritualize this very very quickly and talk about the storms of life, and that's also a legitimate application. But when you start asking, what's going on here? Well, then something different might happen. Who, what, where, when, why? Well, the first thing we might see is, where is Paul? He is in a workplace surrounded by all these people (laughs) who've got a job to do. And he's spending, actually, a prolonged period of time with them. Whereas normally we see Paul interacting with people on the marketplace or Mars Hill or teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus, but not, you know, extended period of time with a lot of non-Christian people, pagans. There's just three Christians on this boat and 273. Well, that's like lots of students in university. That's like lots of young people at school. That's like lots of people in the workplace. Suddenly it's 3, 273. It's 1% of the population. Suddenly this feels like this applies to us. And who's there? Well, there's a hierarchy. There's an owner, a pilot, a captain, a centurion, sailors, soldiers, passengers, citizen prisoners and other prisoners. There's a whole sets of people there. And then we notice that Paul has this message. He has this message. He says, this boat's going to go down. He's got it from God. This boat's going to go down. Everybody ignores him. He tells them. God tells them this boat's going to sink. Don't carry on. They ignore him. Have you been in that situation? How do we respond? How do you respond when godly wisdom is ignored? What do you do then? What has Paul done? Well, he's told them. Winning the argument isn't always the thing that we need to do as Christians. We can't always win the argument. We're not always in control. And then we read that Paul prays for the people. Now, it's important to note that God does not need a boat to get Paul to Rome he can whistle up a whale from the North Atlantic God's got previous on this there you go and then we begin to see new applications Paul is praying for the welfare of everybody else and so that's what we're meant to do we don't win the argument but then we pray and then when the storm comes and it does really look like everything's you know, they're going to go down, but this business is going to go into liquidation, if you like. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There'll be no more sea level jokes. Um, Paul stands up and says, uh, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail uh, from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Paul doesn't deliver this message in an I told you so way. He cites what he said before to give them confidence in what he's saying now. I was right before, I may well be right now. That's why he says, So sometimes we speak up, we know we're not going to be listened to, but we say it anyway. As I spent his whole ministry not being heard. And then he testifies, last night an angel of the Lord and so on. These extraordinary things happening. To whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid Paul. you must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Who's in your boat? Who's in your boat? So without without preaching a whole sermon on this, (laughs) um, Look at Paul's ministry in the boat. He intercedes for them holistically. He's encouraging them emotionally. We're you, you not going down. He witnesses to them clearly. He then tells them to eat in a particular way, and I commend the passage to you. Uh, so he's strengthening them physically, and then he pr- protects them practically. So what is he doing? He's seeking their economic welfare, the preservation of the enterprise, the organization they're a the part of, their physical well-being, He's praying and seeking the kingdom of Shalom in this very difficult context. But it would be very easy to miss it. But when you ask those questions, maybe you don't. But Acts obviously, just to say this, doesn't just give us a picture of the scope of Paul's ministry in, a, in that context, in his boat at that time. It gives us an insight into the faithfulness of God. This is the God who sends him with purpose, who grants favour with the centurion, as you can read in verse 4, I think, or 5. He communicates, he sends an angel. God sends an angel. God wants to get his message through. He responds in prayer, making clear what he's going to do. He strengthens Paul by word and his presence. and He keeps his promises. Not one person is lost. And he fulfills his purpose. The gospel will be heard in Rome. God will fulfill his purposes. The gospel will be heard in Rome. Well, I'm now going to give you an opportunity to have a look at a passage that I particularly love and um, for you to think about it. I'm going to read it to you. If you have a Bible or a phone, you can look at it. Um, It'll be coming up on the screen. I don't think I can get it all on one slide at a time. And I'm just going to ask you, to reflect together for a little bit about what you see, who, what, when, where, why, what you see when you bring those lenses to what is a very famous passage. I'm sure you know the Book of Ruth and the context. Naomi's and Elimelech have gone to Moab, and um, with their two sons, the two sons have married. Ruth and Orpah, the sons and her husband have died, and now Naomi goes back because there is there is a harvest in Bethlehem. She decides to go back, and she releases her daughters-in-law. And Orpah decides to stay with her people in Moab, and Ruth decides to go to uh, Bethlehem with Naomi uh, to follow the one true God. I'm going to read you just nine verses of this. We don't have longer, but I think you'll see what we get out of this. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth. The Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, the text says, The um, Lord bless you, but that's okay. I'll take anything I can get. And then Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So I'd just like you to do a spontaneous Bible study together and think about those questions and I'll flip this text back and forth so you have it. Um, But the five questions, your five a day for today are who, what, when, why? why. Just have a think about that text. Perhaps some of you have phones, some of you have Bibles with you. Um, If you suddenly see there are six of you in a row with a Bible and somebody behind you without one, share a Bible, they'll probably give it back. Okay, let's have a little bit of feedback. Well, I have to work hard on this one haven't you if I start shouting I, I, I'm trying to project make sure that so you can hear me so and they will boost me as so far as they can I'm getting a thumbs up so any thoughts what do you notice could be anything God had a plan as it turned out that was the field is that yeah God had a plan yeah looks random God had a plan Ruth went to work Not on an egg. Yeah. Anyone else? Boaz was a very kind leader. Notice that word leader. It's not just a kind man. He's a leader in that context. Yeah, thank you. Right. This is a very dangerous environment for Ruth to be working in. It's a young foreign woman surrounded by men, and this is the time of the judges, so it's decadent. Okay, okay, yeah. Someone else? Yeah. The right field at the right time. The right field at the right time, of all the fields and all the bars. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love that. The reapers obeyed Boaz. They did, I and mean, if you read on, you'll see how extraordinarily that hand has remained up. Yes. The whole plot. Okay. The whole plot only works because of God's law about gleaning. God, is, through the law of gleaning, God had provided for people who had nothing, and they had nothing. So it only works because God had ordained that, and Ruth could call on that law in order to go into the field and pick up some grain. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Yes. Hard work was recognised. Yeah. Sorry? Character was recognised. What does he say about her? It's an extraordinary set of sentences, isn't it? And just so you know, again, I can't preach on this now, but it's poetry what he says to her in the Hebrew. It's actually poetry. It's kind of an elevated speech. It's almost like sometimes, I don't know if this ever happens to you, Sometimes find yourself saying something and you're thinking, that's not me. But it is, but it isn't. You know, it feels like elevated speech. Suddenly he's, you know, it's like in a musical. Suddenly somebody starts singing. You're going, what? Yeah, okay. One or two more, yes. Boaz is single. <laughs> yes, indeed he is. Yeah. The provision of water. So it's very thoughtful, isn't it? Very thoughtful. She doesn't have any, and... The supervisor hasn't given her permission. She also puts herself below the servants. And the supervisor not giving her permission is an interesting one, isn't it? And how does somebody... So we have people who come in and clean our offices. They're contract cleaners. And, you know, we, um, we pay them the living wage. They don't get the living wage from their, com- from their company. They get the, um, the minimum wage. But we, for the hours, they do for us. You know, and... and You know, we try to um, make sure that we offer them a cup of coffee because they won't take it on their own. It's a small thing. I'm not trying to boast or anything. I'm just saying that's a practical application of that. Yeah. Very good. Ruth's work found favor in the eyes of man and in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them have been foreigners in two different countries, yes. So, you know, Moabites. A Moabite. we're not meant to marry them. We're, you know, these are, in a sense, they're the wrong people. Yeah? Boaz is in the line of Jesus. Boaz is in the line of Jesus. Absolutely right. And, and, and obviously before that, the line of David. Very good. The supervisor had information that Boaz didn't have. And he was able to give him that information. So Boaz is curious, and he's inquisitive, he's working with his team. Well, this is cracking. Thank you very much. And there's um, perhaps lots more to say. But the point is, what we've seen, of course, is this is a workplace. Boaz is a manager. There is a kind of hierarchy in this place, you know, um, when you look at it that way. And when you look at it that way, other things begin to come out. And I'm just going to bring out a few that, um, in a sense, haven't come up. I'll have to skip over some things, because you've said them, but look at the hierarchy. There's a hierarchy, many of us working in hierarchical contexts. And Boaz ignores that hierarchy to talk to her. He doesn't talk to her through the supervisor. He doesn't ignore her. Fine, we've got a new gleaner. There's a, there's a new cleaner. There's a new this. There's a new that. Nothing to do with me. He, he goes. Notice when he says, the Lord be with you, where do we normally hear the Lord be with you? Priest, congregation, in church, Sunday robes. First time it's said in the Bible... Boom. Work a team at work, work their worth that. Completely different. Perfectly legitimate thing to say to somebody. The Lord bless you in your accounting, particularly. And And as has been said, this very beautiful, tender, tender, tender words. And to your point, a lady over there talking about water, the drink from the water jars. If you go on, Boaz says, bread, come and have some bread dipped in wine vinegar, which is a kind of, you know, 8th century equivalent of salt and vinegar crisps, you know. And then he offers her roasted grain at lunchtime. In other words, and then he, you know, he includes her, if you go on, he includes her in, in what's going on. Um, and then you said, as we've said, I've told the men not to touch you. You know, there's a lot of sexual harassment and there's a lot of abuse of power in a variety of ways and he's looking out for, her. he takes the initiative. He knows the culture, he he's anticipates, doesn't he? It's not just, oh, well, I guess it could be a problem here, here's a, here's, here's a young woman and she's a Moabite and she's got no male protector, oh, well, I'll just keep an eye out. But actually, no, no, he's proactive and he, he tells the men before he tells her. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell the men not to touch you. No, he's already told them. It must be very reassuring for Ruth in that context and so on. Um, and then, we have, and then he does something extraordinary a little bit later on, um, which is he, he tells the people, the, the, um, the harvesters, to pull out some stalks for roof and leave them. Now, gleaning is you know you, you're doing this, and actually when you see gleaners, they can they are bent double. I can't do that anymore. If I ever could, but you know they're not they're bent double picking up these grains, like a little like a sparrow picking up uh, you know, bits of grains of. Stork has 30 or 40, so if somebody leaves you a stork, that's really good news. And what he's doing there is he's what Bose is doing is changing the way that, if you like, the harvest protocols are done. He's changing the system for the benefit of the poor, changing the system for the benefit of others. And of course, if you're in an organization or you're in a club or whatever, sometimes the system doesn't really really work for the benefit of everybody. can work for the benefit of some, but not everybody. And he kind of notices that. So he gives them permission to leave as much as they like. So he basically says, you can be as generous as you like with my money. (laughs) And how generous are they? Well, just the last detail before I move on from this really, is that uh, she she takes 22 litres away at the end of the chapter. 22 litres of barley Um, and that's a lot of grains of barley. Uh, I have a friend in Bedfordshire who grows barley and he he calculated what 22 litres of Bedfordshire barley would be in terms of grains Um, and I slightly misquoted this the other day it's 297,968 grains of Bedfordshire barley. Now maybe Bedfordshire barley is smaller or bigger than Bethlehem barley either way Barley is not as big as an orange. <laughs> you know, it's a little thing. It's a lot of grains. They gave her a lot of stuff. But if Boaz had given her a big sack at the end of the day, I know you've got this pot, but here's a big sack as well. That would be the laborers in the vineyard problem. Wouldn't it? They'd have gone, look, we've worked all day and look what you've done. So he empowers his own people to be generous. And of course, people do that in a variety of ways. Some companies give us two days off to go and do something in the community and so on and so forth. And there's all kinds of ways to do this. Now, why, why, why am I asking us to, to do this, really? is because the reason, ultimately the reason why we have a sacred, secularly divided church is because we read the Bible even though we as a community and particularly Keswick are brilliant at reading the Bible. I mean, let's face it, I'm fantastically rich reading the Bible. But overall, we've read the Bible in some ways with sacred secular eyes. That's why That's where we've got to. That's why we're there. Because if we weren't, we wouldn't have a church that wasn't empowering people for everyday life and empowering us for our work and helping us see how to make the most of our retirement, really planning into that, and so on. So, how do we help one another with that? No one's wagging their fingers at anybody. here. We are where we are. We help one another. But if we can begin to read the Bible this way, day by day, we will resource ourselves and one another, which is the point. Listen to all the insights that we got from that time. Ten minutes. Imagine if I'd given you 15. You know what I mean? I mean, we have insights into, into the Word and we share them from one another. And we trust that the place that God has put us gives us insights perhaps into the text that we wouldn't otherwise have, our own life experience. So, although it's a daring thing to say in a place that loves the Bible so much, but precisely because we love the Bible so much here, let's try to do it as well as we can. And So two things as we close. Reading the Bible with whole life eyes. And then I would say that one of the things I've been trying to help us see this week is that we reflect on our lives with whole life eyes. So we have a discipline within our, within our streams of reading the Bible, perhaps whenever it is that you do, it. often people do it at the beginning of the day, or perhaps sometimes at the end. We're less good at looking back on our day and saying, where was God in that? That's what the Psalms do. That's what David's Psalms do, doesn't They, they are reflections on what's happened. They're reflections on what's happened. The whole Bible, in a sense, is a set of testimonies about what God has done. And although we can be, we're less, if you like, we have, except perhaps in the Pentecostal stream, we're less quick to tell a story of how God has been working in our lives. But the Bible tells lots of these things, and David tells lots of them, to encourage us so that we can see what God has been doing. God has been doing this in my life. God has been working through me as I do the dishes. God has been working through me as I worked on that Excel spreadsheet. God has a purpose for me in my retirement. God has a purpose even though I am confined to home at the moment. And we see it, and when we see it, then we share it. Tell someone else. That's how we build up the body. We've heard lots of stories this week about a variety of people doing a variety of things. And praise God for all of them. And many of you have come and told me stories uh, which will appear (laughs) with your permission Um, in other places thank you for that let me um let me close with this
1: every day God sends us his people young old and everyone in between out into his world to the places we normally go work and school gym and shop, field and factory. To the people he's put us alongside to do good work that brings good to others, ministering love and grace, snuffing out injustice and speaking truth with kindness, sharing Jesus in word and deed to see brows unfurrow, hearts soften, wounds heal, people set free, home, school, work, a nation changed, day by day.